Good morning and welcome to my study in this strange new virtual world. Today, our journey through Acts brings us to chapter 22, verse 22. If you have a Bible or Bible device with you, please turn there straight away. Acts 22:22. Here we find Paul back in Jerusalem, despite many prophetic warnings about the dangers of going there. There were, to say the least, ongoing difficulties between the Jewish authorities and this new Christian offshoot of their faith. So after he'd met with the leaders of the local church, Paul had agreed to perform a particular Jewish ritual, apparently to precisely to prove that he was still a faithful member of Judaism. But this well-meaning symbolic action was turned against him by various troublemakers who falsely accused him of defiling the temple by bringing in Gentiles. A riot ensued and Paul took a beating, not for the first time. He was rescued by the local garrison and cheekily on the steps of the army barracks he found himself to be, as it were, on a raised stage and since he was never one to be uh, neglecting an audience, he took this opportunity to address the crowd. And as we read last week, it all went swimmingly until, in verse 21, he claimed that God had sent him far away to preach to the Gentiles. Now read on, beginning at Acts 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and Throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out what they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who is standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. You might say, dropped him like a hot brick. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realised that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And God said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamour arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. Whatever spirit or an angel spoke to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, as I see it, this passage is a tale of trouble, tribalism and truth. All I want to do this morning is to work through these verses together with these three factors in mind. And I'll try and draw some conclusions at the end. And if you want a title for the talk, that's probably it. Truth, Trouble and Tribalism. Well, Paul had been prophesied plenty of trouble if he went to Jerusalem and now he's getting it. But as Jeremy said a couple of weeks back, the prophecy didn't allow Paul to change his plans. The greater truth which he had to obey was that God had called him to go there. The less important truth, that it was all going to get a bit hairy when he did get there, didn't deflect him from his purpose, nor should it. And this is the reason why in the vineyard we tend to speak out any words or pictures we have for other people. Um, if the Lord tells us that we can, but we refrain from giving interpretation or direction. That is up to the individual. Well, there Paul was, already battered and bruised by the crowd and about to be thrown in a nice safe jail cell. Yet as we read last week, he responded with extraordinary courage, telling the story of his conversion to the very people who had just duffed him up. Perhaps he was able to respond in this way precisely because he'd been forewarned. So this beating was all just part of the plan which the prophets had revealed. But notice here the first evidence of tribalism. Once the crowd heard him addressing them in their native Hebrew, they gave him a decent hearing. They had attacked him because he was different. He was one of them, not one of us. But now that he speaks to them in Hebrew, Perhaps he was one of us, after all. I think it's amazing that they listened so quietly to truths which had been said elsewhere to turn the whole world upside down. The blinding light, the voice of the risen Jesus, Paul's healing, conversion and baptism. And apparently they have no problem with any of that. Right up to verse 21 when he says, Jesus sent me far away to the Gentiles then the tribalism really takes over and the riot starts all over again. And that, as they say, is where we came in. Up to this statement, the crowd's tribalism had worked very nicely for Paul, thank you very much. But in their book, the holy city of Jerusalem was the God-ordained epicentre of anything good that will come from their faith. And in fact, they weren't alone. Even many centuries later, religiously minded Christians would seek to be buried in Jerusalem in order to be among the first to see the Lord return on Judgment Day. So the bias of these Jewish people was really not so very surprising. 
If Paul really was bringing some great new development in their faith, such as the revelation of the long-awaited Messiah, then surely the Jews must obviously be the people, and surely Jerusalem must obviously be the place for it. Anyone who thought otherwise was clearly not one of us. In which case, he should, in the immortal words of Napoleon Dynamite, get out of my life and shut up. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, when Paul says he has learned to become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some, what he's talking about is precisely what he's done here as he speaks to the crowd in Hebrew. He himself isn't motivated by tribalism, or indeed by avoiding trouble in particular, but since they're extremely tribal in the, themselves, he appeals to them in the most culturally acceptable way he can think of. Astonishingly, the message that causes a riot is actually one of reconciliation. He wants them to know about God's plan to reconcile all things, yes, even Jews and Gentiles alike, 2 Corinthians 5.19, to himself. But such was their tribalism that he might as well have told a bunch of Rangers fans that the bosses were planning to merge, to merge with Celtic. He's treading on tribal toes and trouble ensues. The scene closes with him being dragged quickly indoors and tied to the flogging frame to have the truth beaten out of him, as you do, or at least as they did in those days. But this pointless act of casual brutality is prevented when Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship, verse 25. Here, apparently, a different sort of tribalism comes to his rescue. Roman citizens, unlike the provincial masses, had rights. And even here, I don't think Paul was concerned merely with his own safety. Rather, appealing to the tribune's self-interest might just get him a proper hearing for the gospel. Sure enough, the Tribune moves quickly when he hears that this bedraggled and bruised traveller is a Roman citizen. One imagines, perhaps, a fat man running. Instead of a flogging in verse 30, Paul secures a trial before not just the Tribune himself, but all the Jewish authorities as well. That's more the kind of audience that he had in mind. It's an opportunity to bring his vital truth before the very people who would have the power to make Christianity mainstream throughout all of Judaism. So verse 1, he gives it his very best shot. Addressing them as brothers, finding the common ground again, he begins by saying that his conscience is clear before God. Unfortunately, we'll never know what he would have said next, because his mouth is immediately stopped with a fist. Still trying to establish his identity as a keeper, not a breaker of the Jewish law, he calls out a legal challenge to the man who ordered him to be struck, only to find that this man, with such a scant respect for the law, turns out to be the chief priest. It's not looking good. But once again he seeks common ground. He tries appealing to this tribe of fellow lawyers, demonstrating his own knowledge of the law in verse 5 and his adherence to it. Well, our court reporter skates over what happens next. But whatever it is, it shows Paul that this council is a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees. As verse 8 reminds us, the former didn't believe in an afterlife or a spirit world, whereas the latter 
believed in both. Paul sees that he's not going to get anywhere persuading them of the great truth of God embracing the Gentiles. So he moves on, perhaps just slightly mischievously, to argue for an equally important but a more divisive truth about resurrection from the dead. He's appealing now to yet another tribalism when he identifies with the Pharisees. He shouts over the council's learned discussions and declares himself to be on trial precisely for holding the Pharisee view of life after death. And what ensues is a clear demonstration, as any that you could wish to find, of Jesus saying that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Once again, we see a simple, perhaps a devilish equation worked out. Truth plus tribalism equals trouble. And we read in verse 10 that the argument already heated now becomes violent. It's almost a comical scene as all these mostly elderly, learned professors, doubtless wearing their robes of office, descend into fisticuffs. But there's a real danger here too, verse 10. And, if the, tri and the tribune extracts Paul by force and shuts him up once again in the barracks. Well, it's over. He really did get his message, didn't really get his message across after all. And that night when Jesus visits Paul in his cell, it's to promise him what must have seemed rather a mixed blessing. As he's testified to Jesus' truth in Jerusalem, so too he will testify in Rome. We might note that the Jerusalem experience hadn't exactly been a bundle of laughs. Yet uncompromising as the message is, I think we can also hear in the Lord's voice his divine approval of Paul and of his faithful witness here. What then can we learn from what appears to be, at first glance, rather an unedifying story of dignity cast aside in division and strife, of persecution of the just, and the apparent triumph of self-serving, brutal officialdom? Well, I think it reminds us of four simple things which we can tend to forget. I certainly do from time to time. Thing one, as we just saw, it reminds us that Jesus' calling on our lives is to witness to his truth, not to involve ourselves in petty point-scoring tribalism, whatever others might choose to do. Tribalism always tends to obscure the truth and often leads to trouble as well. Social media is a hotbed of tribalism, particularly of the political kind. We should beware arguments that are based not on sound reasoning, but on biased assumptions about the other tribe. An argument isn't good just because it comes from our tribe, and it's not bad just because it comes from the other tribe. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, hold on to what is good. Number two, it recalls the simple message of Matthew 12, 25. A house divided against itself will not stand. Every time we stand on our dignity as Christians against the world that Jesus died to save, we go against the truth of his message of reconciliation. Every time we place our own particular brand of Christianity above everyone else's, we divide and weaken his church. 
Thirdly, it calls to mind a particular gapodge, that is, great unremembered promises of Jesus. That is, John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. In the words of a song we often sing in worship, I will walk upon the water and keep my eyes above the waves. In his visits to the UK, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, frequently encouraged us leaders to ignore all the trouble and tribalism that comes along and concentrate instead on the truth. He put it like this. When all that stuff happens, don't be concerned. It's just people doing people stuff. That's what people do. We have to learn to concentrate on God doing God stuff. And fourth and lastly, it reminds us of the forgotten first half of Jesus' much-quoted sentence in John 8.32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We all know that bit, but we tend to forget what comes before. In fact, the sentence begins in verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Awkward as it seems, I invite you to stand and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we choose to be those who stand for your truth, not for any tribal loyalty. Like Paul, we want to be wise in seeking common ground to share the truth. But it's the truth that matters. And we also want to be those who will stand in times of trouble as in times of ease. We pray that by your spirit, you will make us good witnesses to what you've done, to who you are and the gift that you have to give to this world. So come and fill us, Holy Spirit, and make us whole again, in Jesus' name.